You're listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z. And on today's episode, we have a man who defines Hudson Valley music and around the world. Why not? And he's also fought for our environment as congressman from New York. We got all kinds of stuff to talk about. He's the leader of the rock group Orleans, as well as his own John Hall band. I'm speaking, of course, about the legendary John Hall. John, welcome to The Rick Z Show. Thank you, Rick. It's so good to be here. Thanks for asking. It's an honor to have you on the show. Thanks for doing it. Are you still in Dover Plains? Do you still live there? No, I'm in Nashville. I just uh, moved down sort of in stages this year. So still have three storage units in uh, Dutchess County. But I've been living in in Dutchess County and Dover Plains or in LaGrange for the last, oh, gee, 20 years or so. And before that, Nashville. And before that, Saugerties. And before that, uh, on a boat somewhere on the East Coast. Moved around a lot. I tend to do that. I mean, I, the whole time that we've been recording, going back to uh, the first Orleans record, we spent a lot of time. That one was in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. We made uh, the next one in Bearsville, Woodstock. And uh, and then after that, we made two records in L.A. and wound up living out there for three to six months, depending on how fast the recording was going and the mixing and overdubbing and everything. So in between, we travel performing. So, so yeah, I'm not used to staying in one place real long, but... Uh, but I managed to do it from time to time. Great. That's some beautiful studios you've recorded in. Muscle Shoals, the former Muscle Shoals studio, right? They, I don't think they're around anymore. Yeah, there's still a bunch of studios there. But uh, but the one we recorded in, which was not actually even the original, Roger Hawkins, who, along with Barry Beckett, produced the first Orleans album, was giving us a tour of Muscle Shoals one day. And he drove past this storefront. He said, that's where our first studio was. And I said, so what was the first song you played drums on? He said, when a man loves a woman, Percy Sledge. That's <laughs> like starting at the top, are we? Yeah. Speaking of starting at the top, I'd like to start at the top and go back before your huge success with Orleans, before your band Kangaroo even. I want to talk to you about what inspires professional musicians to get involved and spend their life playing music usually happens when you're a kid. Most men and women of your generation would say the Beatles inspired them. I'm curious who inspired you to do this? Who did it for you and made you say, you know what, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do with my life. Well, I I had that same moment that a lot of musicians of my generation had uh, watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan for the first time. I can still remember what they did. And McCartney counted off all my loving and that crystallized something for me that it was possible to do your own songs, you know, write your own material and make records and, and tour. And, you know, maybe nobody else is going to have the success that the Beatles had. Certainly not exactly like that. But in order to crystallize that kind of vision, I think I had to have something before that. And for me, it was uh, when I was five or maybe four years old, visiting my grandmother in Providence, Rhode Island and listening to her record player that was hot wired into it one of those old waist high uh, rca radios with shortwave band and marine band and the weather band and am and i don't even know if fm was around at the time but probably and listening to pete seeger with the weavers which she had in her record collection and also to chet atkins another favorite of hers so i was kind of coming at this uh, from that early age listening to lyrics about topics that were important I mean, all, t- all topics are important. I love you is important. Dance with me is important uh, not to denigrate uh, any emotion or, or any uh, statement. But anyway, that sort of uh, content on one side and then the musicality of Shed Atkins and the guitar 
technique that he possessed. It was just, uh, and there were other influences too. My, my parents sang a lot. I sang and played, I played organ in church when I was a kid and studied uh, 11 years of uh, classical piano and six years of French horn. And, you know, I was a pretty seriously trained musician. So it just all combined so that when I saw that Ed Sullivan show, I could go, okay, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, I've heard that a lot. I've heard that a lot from a lot of people. Did you take guitar lessons as a kid? No, I taught myself to play guitar, which after you've learned piano and you have the theory down, which notes go with which other notes, you know, which chords and scales apply to a particular song or particular passage. For me, uh, I probably should have taken lessons, but I didn't. And maybe that makes me have a style that's more of my own than, than if I'd studied at that point. I went back later and took guitar lessons to find out everything I was doing wrong in terms of holding my thumb around the neck instead of behind it. And, uh, you know, there are things that any self-taught person develops that maybe you're not uh, kosher. Yeah. You come from a predominantly Catholic upbringing. I know your parents were Catholic and your brother is a priest, right? Or he was a priest, I should yes, say. Yeah. You know, going into the quote unquote big bad music business, how did your Catholic parents feel about that? Well, they thought I was throwing my life away. And I, every once in a while, I get a question from school kids and in groups that I, I've done a lot of teaching songwriting and uh, you know, everything from fourth grade up to college level. And I frequently get asked, I'm thinking about changing my major, or I'm thinking about uh, dropping out and playing music in a band and trying to make, make a go of it as a professional musician. What do you think I should do? And I say, if you have to ask me, don't do it. <laughs> because it's hard. I mean, it's, it's kind of like becoming a professional athlete. You know, you have to, there's a very tall pyramid, very steep-sided pyramid. Ballet is the same kind of thing. You can't, you can't just decide to do ballet and wind up making a living at it. It's just, so many people trying to get up to the top of that pyramid to the or the top few levels where you do make a living. So Yeah, absolutely. It's something you have to be compelled to do because as uh, Robbie Robertson said, it was a damn impossible way of life. And uh, there's something to that being a musician, something always a little implausible about it. You you have to be compelled to do it. It's, it's not something you can ask somebody's advice and then just right. take it and do it. You have to have a passion, obviously. Yeah, agreed. So being raised in that environment, how did that affect your lifestyle and maybe even your music, if at all? Well, the harmonies that, that Orleans does, that I write and sing, come out of sort of classical traditions as well as church traditions, and also from the Beatles and the Beach Boys and various, you know, doo-wop groups and how many things that are out there. Everything I listen to, I think, goes into my music. It just gets filtered uh, through me and... But, you know, with the Hoppin Brothers on, growing up on Long Island, they had music teachers for parents. And uh, mom and dad, they met on a gig. They both taught music and played professionally. So they learned to harmonize with their family, of course, but sort of in the same way that I did. I sang in choirs and just loved the sound of and the, and the feeling of singing in harmony with other people. And I always admired the Everly Brothers, for instance, who that two-part harmony was amazing and uh, also very inspirational to John Lennon and uh, Paul McCartney. Mm -hmm. and they did some things you can tell were taken right. Uh, the style was taken right out of the Everly Brothers music. So musically, it was, it's easy to describe where it came from. And I think lyrically, my parents were, uh, well, my dad was New England Protestant, converted to Catholicism to marry my mother. And um, she was a Slovak, second generation Slovak immigrant family. And uh, we were just taught to, uh, to try to do the right thing. And we were taught to be good stewards of the earth. And when my little brother Jerry got ordained, I remember in his first sermon, his homily, as they call it, 
that he gave saying uh, that in Genesis, the, uh, the first physical manifestations of God were, you know, the void, the sky, the earth, the sea, the creatures that swam in the sea, crawled on the land and flew in the sky. And only after all of them were humans, Adam and Eve, created. And so he said in this introductory sermon, he said, when we dump toxins, poison into the ocean or on the land or spray it into the sky, we are defiling the first physical manifestation of God. And I was, yes, that's my brother. (laughs) (laughs) So I got to see him sort of on stage or on the altar. Uh, He usually was watching me on stage. But uh, when Pope John Paul came to the United States and had his big mass on the Washington Monument Mall for two million people, my brother was the uh, cantor. And I was watching on TV. Pope went by and patted him on the shoulder. Uh, I went, all right, that's my brother again. (laughs) You know, it's... It was an interesting family. I think all families are interesting, but, you know, I had a dad was a scientist, uh, electrical engineer, PhD, um, worked on the camera that took the first live pictures from the moon wow. when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. He was, he designed, uh, led the design team at Westinghouse, actually, that did that for NASA, you know, under contract to NASA. So his name's on the patent. He didn't get the royalties from it, but his name's on the patent. And my mom was the first woman in this country to graduate from a Jesuit seminary. She's uh, got a master's in divinity. And so that's an unusual mom and dad. And and my father wanted his three sons to be scientists. My mother wanted her three sons to be priests. And I wound up with my older brother, an actuary, mathematical probability specialist, and younger brother, a priest. And I'm kind of in the middle. We all know how math and, and music are so related. So I, you know, I've just always written songs that some people say are too preachy. Hmm. I never picked up on that, but it does sound like you have very interesting parents for sure. You know, you made a comment about the Everly Brothers and, you know, I always got the impression that songwriting, music in general, was really just a melting pot of our influences. I mean, you mentioned the influence that the Everly Brothers had on the Beatles. Well, the Everly Brothers heroes were the Leuven Brothers and the Leuven Brothers heroes were the Delmore Brothers. And you can keep going back and back. So I guess we're all kind of a product of everything that we've heard that turned us on o- over time. That's true. And sometimes it's, it's important and fun even to go back and find who the influences were on the people who influenced you. Yeah. Let's jump ahead a little bit to the late 60s, early 70s. I'm speaking about your band Kangaroo. You guys played down in the city. You played in all those classic Greenwich Village and New York City clubs like Cafe One, places that pretty much don't exist anymore, but are classic nonetheless. What kind of band was Kangaroo? I, I was not that familiar with them. What was the idea behind Kangaroo and how long did it last? Kangaroo lasted a couple of years. It was, the idea was uh, to try to make a living in New York playing in a band doing originals, you know, original songs, which is a challenge. Uh, you don't get the usual holiday end gigs and weddings and stuff because they all want to hear cover songs. Yeah. But it was also, I think, one of the concepts was to play as many notes as possible. <laughs> we were just, you know, that youthful exuberance and show-off tendencies. Uh, I played bass in that band. Uh, a guy named Teddy Spelios played guitar. He was a phenomenal uh, player. And, and between the two of us, we could play a lot of notes. Also, uh, Norman Smart, N.D. Smart, who went on to be the original drummer in Mountain, Leslie West band, uh, was playing drums. And Barbara Keith uh, playing acoustic rhythm guitar and singing uh, she went on to write songs like Free the People for Delaney and Bonnie and to make a couple of Warner Brothers solo albums and, 
So it was an interesting combination of uh, sensibilities. And there's some good things there on that record. It's uh, it's hard for me to listen to just because I've learned so much after that about how to make records. Where's that Australian sounding name come from? Kangaroo. Oh, Kangaroo? A brainstorming session when we all sit up too late doing chemicals we mm-hmm. shouldn't have been doing. <laughs> It's funny, whenever I go out and I see a band and they're playing too many notes, I always say, I bet you they're getting paid by the note. Yeah. So by 1972, you had Orlean's second album out. No, I'm sorry. Your first album. The second album was in 74. It yielded a major hit, Dance With Me. I mean, you hear... Yeah, the- we actually, I had a solo record in uh, called Action. It was released on CBS in 1970. And then the first Orlean's album. And then there was Orlean's 2, the second album, which was along with the first, was on ABC Records. And they didn't hear a hit on the second one, although it did have an earlier version of Dance With Me on it and the song Let There Be Music. And so uh, they dropped us rather than put that second record out. And uh, so they didn't hear a hit. <clears throat> Chuck Plotkin, who was head of A&R for uh, David Geffen's Asylum Records, saw us at Nexus, Kansas City, doing a showcase, yet another showcase, trying to get a, a deal, and signed us to, to Asylum. And he was perceptive enough to by the re-recording rights of those two songs for ABC, Let There Be Music and Dance With Me. So the third album we made was the first one on Asylum, the Let There Be Music album. Well, Dance With Me, it was such an enormous hit. I mean, you still hear it all the time on the radio. What was that like? Everybody, every musician I know is hoping for some kind of stardom. You experienced it. It must have been like opening a door to another dimension when it first happened real big. Yeah, uh, you know, we were just working the whole time. We we just worked as hard as we work. And the goal always was to make music that we liked. And, of course, to to try to be successful with it. Uh, literary music got into the top 40. I think it got just about to number 40 or maybe upper 30s. Um, and then uh, Dance With Me got to number five on one of the charts. I, I forget the exact. Back then, there were three. It was Billboard, Cashbox, and Record World magazines were the industry charts. But... You know, when you pull up to a stoplight in your car and the windows are rolled down and the guy next to you is playing dance with me out of his radio really loud, and you know it's not your relative. This is not somebody who's doing it because it's yours. Uh, they're doing it because they like it. And so that, that makes quite an impression. And I heard uh, with that and still the one I got to hear the songs on WABC AM radio, which is the station I listened to when growing up in Elmira, New York because they had that 50,000-watt clear channel nighttime signal, and uh, I could get them in the closet. And this old helicopter's radio my father had given me. You know, there were signs along the way. We well, we went on tour with Melissa, Melissa Manchester when she had Midnight Blue out. And Dance With Me was really the only song like that. I mean, we had, I guess, uh, Time Passes On was acoustic, but most of the stuff was pretty electric. We'd been, uh, from the beginning, a band that played kind of R&B and reggae stuff with the harmonies on the top. The three-part harmonies would add that flavor, but we were always trying to play kind of funky rock and roll. And So when we went on tour with Melissa and Dance With Me was our only, the only song that most of the people in the audience had heard, they would be surprised to get 90% of the show would be pretty rocking out, you know, groovy stuff. So, but it, you know, it's, it's never bad having a hit record. No. I mean, this is an amazing thing. The thing I like about dance with me, or I'm sort of most proud of at this point is that melodically it's strong enough that all kinds of artists have covered it. Uh, Jose Feliciano has done it in his live show. I saw a video on YouTube of him uh, doing it. I, you know, Chet Atkins recorded it, which was kind of a full circle coming for me because I learned to play Glowworm off that Chet Atkins record that I heard in my grandmother's house. It was recorded by uh, probably the most 
off the wall one is uh, Bobby McFerrin, uh, Earl Clue, the jazz guitar player. Uh, the list goes on. I just really gratified that those people all love the song enough to do it. And, and even the ones that are instrumental versions, that they love the melody enough to do that. You were in Orleans from 72 to 77, technically, but you were really in Orleans a lot longer than that on and off, right? Well, I'm back with Orleans now right. and, uh, and have come and gone a few times. Yeah, I left in 77 and put out a solo record in 78. It was just an eponymous John Hall record on Asylum in 78, which had some really good songs, I think, on it, but didn't have a hit single. And then I signed with Maurice White's uh, Of Earth, Wind & Fires custom label on Columbia, American Recording Company, ARC, and um, made one record for them, which was the Power album. And so the song Power, of course, the title track, uh, came out three miles, uh, three weeks before the Three Mile Island meltdown in Pennsylvania. And so that kind of led me, oh, I was already into the no nukes uh, cause because of a nuclear plant that the state of New York was trying to build uh, six miles north of Saugerties and Woodstock. The fact that I wrote this, you know, wrote the song after going to one of the hearings and listening to these guys who seemed like they were ignoring anything that the residents of the area had to say. Anyway, that was there was that. And then in 1984, Wells Kelly passed away and we had a memorial for him. And I got together with Larry Hoppin and Bob Leinbach, actually up in Ithaca and sang at a um, at a place called the Rongovian Embassy in Trumansburg, New York kind of a memorial concert party for Wells Kelly. And we both went, Larry and I both went, well, we, <laughs> we sound pretty good together, don't we? You know? And then we got together with Lance and we wound up making an album in Nashville, uh, produced by Tony Brown and uh, David Hungate. Tony Brown who was in the hot band with Emmylou Harris and, uh, and pl- played piano with Elvis. Before that. <laughs> and David Hungate, who was the bass player of the band Toto and uh, just incredible musicians, both of them. Uh, so they produced us and, we made this uh, kind of country crossover record and did a little touring and, you know, and then we went back and forth a few times and um, I did more solo records and came back with the band in the nineties in the two thousands. And then after Larry passed away in 2012, uh, Lance asked me if I would finish out that year so they could do the gigs they were contracted to do. And I said, of course. So I've been playing with uh, Orlane since then. And we've made some music and some videos that, uh, that I'm really proud of. And, and I think they show off the band in a couple of really good ways. You mentioned Wells Kelly. I wanted to talk about him for a minute, if we could. You yielded another monster hit, Still the One. I mean, that was huge, just like Dance With Me was. It was everywhere. I, I remember when it was on the radio at the time, everywhere you went, they played it. Even still, to this day, they play it. But what's interesting about Wells Kelly, from what I understand, I don't know much about this. Perhaps you can shed some light on it. I guess the producer was not crazy about the groove that Wells Kelly was playing, and he was replaced by Jerry Murata. What can you tell me about that? Well, Jerry was already playing on the record. We decided to try having a second drummer, partly because Wells really wanted to play keyboard, which he was really good at. He also played bass and guitar. and It was an amazing talent. But Chuck Plotkin, who was the guy that signed us to Asylum Records, knew how to take songs apart and put them back together. He was the first person I had worked with and who got that kind of respect from us because he'd proven himself to be right. I mean, he had us cut dance movie three times. Uh, he had us cut Let There Be Music again. He had done uh, a couple of productions with uh, you know different artists in L.A., the band Brendel, which was Kenny Edwards, Andrew Gold, Wendy Waldman, and uh, Carla Bonoff. Just like super group there, you know, before yeah. they became individual stars. So Chuck was still the one. He just said, it's not a shuffle. 
It's not da 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 It should be like more of a straight beat. And Jerry was uh, really good at that. Jerry could play like a drum machine before there were drum machines. So we wound up cutting the song first with Wells playing drums and Jerry, I think both drummers, which we did live a bunch. And then we tried cutting it with, I think, Jerry playing the kick drum and snare drum and Wells playing fills and cymbals and stuff, which was a nice idea, but that didn't really work either. And then Chuck and I wound up with uh, Jerry working on the beat while everybody else took a lunch break and came up with this very simple thing with a, just fours on a hi-hat. And it says, yeah, boom, bat, ba-boom, bat, ba-boom, boom, bat, boom. And it goes, goes through the whole song like that, ex- with the exception of a couple of fills and halftime on the bridge and, and on the ending. So it came together kind of like a machine. We, we had that and then the upbeat keyboards, the kind of reggae electric keyboard, the Fender Rhodes part worked against that and the guitar parts worked against that. And uh, the bass part was just doing fours. Lance was playing do-do-do-do-do-do. And it just no one instrument was doing the whole thing, but it worked as a whole. And uh, yeah, I'm really proud of that track. And that, that record was a project. Uh, <laughs> something hadn't happened near the end, actually, when we were we had finished mixing it. Val Garay, who mixed Baby Davis Eyes for Kim Carnes and the JT album for James Taylor and so on. He was Val was mixing and um, we were paying him a hefty amount of money to off of our record budget, which was eventually our royalties to mix. So we we got this mix and uh, bounced down to two track and it was too long. Back then, AM radio stations wanted definitely under three minutes. If you get it down to two and a half minutes, they would love it. And the record was over four minutes long. So we took out a course, uh, the repeat choruses at the end. It's still the one. Uh, So Val Gray, our mixing engineer, put the tape in the splicing block. This was before digital editing, of course. And so he used a razor blade to cut the tape. And splicing tape to put it together. He had the piece, the chorus he took out was hanging around his neck. So he put the two ends together, rolled it back and played it. And there was a dropout in Larry's vocal at the end of the bridge where it goes, even though we grow old, it grows new. You still, instead of still the one, it went still the one. Ah. There's a little piece missing. We were like, what was that? What, what just happened? You know, and Val took it out and held it up to the light. And he said, some of the oxide fell off the tape. You just, you guys have been running it back and forth across the heads for three months and doing all the triple backup vocals and overdubs and punch ins. And, and, and we said, oh no, we've ruined it. Let's look on the floor and see if we can find it. And of course, there's a shag rug, brown shag rug on the floor. We're looking for a flake of oxide from an old analog tape, which is pointless. And Val said to us, don't worry, nobody will ever notice. There was a great mix. It just, you know, my hands were shaking. I knew that was it. And he had his coat on and his girlfriend was at the door ready to go out for lunch. And he was saying, I'll be back in about an hour or so. We'll start the next tune. We went, oh, wait, we want to make sure that that's really okay. You know, he said, don't worry about it. And the truth is no one in 48 years, 47 years since they came out, nobody has ever mentioned it. What was that weird Buddy Holly hiccup in Larry's voice? Sounds like he did it on purpose. So it just goes to show you can get too close to the forest to see the trees. And, you know, that's why you need experts who will tell you otherwise when you think something's wrong or when you think something's right. Between Chuck Plotkin and Val Garay, we we had those.
Jackson Brown had his Running on Empty album, and on that album is a song called Rosie, and the song is about a drummer that sweeps a girl away from the singer. Jackson Brown said one time in an interview that that drummer was from Orleans. To the best of your knowledge, was that Wells County? That's Wells. It had to be Wells. I mean, sweeping a girl away from Jackson Brown cannot be easy. Wells swept a few girls away. I didn't know about that, but the Jackson story. Not all ask him, though. We all owe you a debt of gratitude, John, for your work that you've done with the environment as congressman for New York, and of course, for many other things. Let's talk about that for a second. Your political career goes way back. Back in the 80s, you were elected to the Ulster County Legislature. You worked on the school board in Saugerties. You've done so much stuff. Politics has been a big part of your life. How come? Uh, Well, I guess I would go back to the story about my brother's first sermon, you know. You know, we have a responsibility to our communities, uh, you know, to the other species on this planet, to each other, and to our own conscience. I'm happy to acknowledge that. And sometimes the people in the business side of the music business get nervous. Some people get turned off, some radio or TV people or media in general think that musicians and athletes should stick to what they do and don't speak up about other things. But I think it's, you know, all of us have a responsibility to, to try to share our knowledge and experience strength and hope. That's a great philosophy. And you use that philosophy your entire life in your career, politics, music, whatever. But from 2006 to 2010, you were a congressman serving the the 19th district of New York State. What is harder to do, singing for thousands of people on stage or getting up in front of Congress and speaking? Well, being a congressman in general is harder for me. It's harder because I didn't know in advance the tools that I needed to know. With music, I've been learning since I was a baby, you know, since I was playing piano, since I was four and a half. Um, campaigning, it was not much of a stretch because I'm used to being on stage. I'm used to handling hecklers. I'm used to improvising. You know, one of the things I love most about music is improvising. And so to improvise speaking, that's okay. I don't mind having to do that. And and I also read enough so that I am pretty well educated about the issues I speak about. But when you get elected, if you get elected, then it's like drinking from a fire hose. We had three weeks of orientation after that election in 2006, the, the one that first got me into the House of Representatives. And learning how to staff up an office, or in my case, three offices, two in the district, one east of the Hudson, one west of the Hudson, and one in D.C., how to find the best staff people, you know, going through stacks of resumes, trying to sort out the wheat from the chaff, and how to write legislation, how to work the committee system to get something through a subcommittee to the full committee and then to the floor of the House. There were a lot of things that uh, required pretty intense learning. And then it's 13-hour days, seven days a week. Um, could have been more, but that's, you know, for me to do it conscientiously, you know, I would try to keep Sundays off. And then my scheduler would say, uh, well, there's this one uh, Jewish congregation in Westchester that really wants you to come talk to them, but they can't do it on Saturday because that's their Sabbath. And I say, okay, I guess I'll do it. just this one thing. And then you go, well, since you're going to be in Westchester, there's this union group or there's this fire brigade or something that, I mean, so it wound up becoming every day, all day and part of the night. So it's it's work. It really is work. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of people in Congress when I was there and today who I would disagree with about the issues, but I can't get past the fact or ignore the fact that they're all working really hard. Would you say your musical success helped you get some of your messages across? Politically? Yeah, no question. I was riding up in the elevator with uh, a bunch of members, Republican and Democratic members of the House for a series of votes. And the guy standing next to me was one of the members from across the aisle said, uh, 
is it true that you wrote Dance With Me? And I said, yes. And he pulled out the paper that listed the votes we were about to take and said, could you sign this to my wife? That's her favorite song. (laughs) (laughs) Or that was our our first dance at our wedding. That's what it was. So, yeah, so it reaches, music reaches across all boundaries. And we're trying to promote an idea for legislation or any concept that you want people to uh, to think about and maybe adopt. Always good to have a hook. Writing songs, I've always placed a high value, just as I did as a listener. I mean, without uh, She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. <laughs> From the Beatles on to Bob Dylan to the Rolling Stones, whoever, there's a hook to a song can bring you back enough times that you hear the verses. And that, so that's the thing to do. I, I have a hard time doing it, as you could probably tell, because I talk and run on sentences. My staff used to say, uh, stick to the talking points, because that way they'll only use what you want them to use. Whereas if you go on, you go off script and start rambling on about something else, that might be what winds up in the article. Yeah. So anyway, I'm still working on it. Delgado's got your old position. Do you think he's doing a good job? I think he's good. Yeah. I like Antonio. So you used a catchphrase in Congress, reclaiming my time. That's very interesting. In May, you released an album with the same title. What does that mean to you politically? And what does it mean to you musically? Well, politically, reclaiming my time is uh, after you've been an uninterrupted by somebody, getting back here a lot of time to speak. You know, if I'm on the floor of the, when I was on the floor of the house uh, and somebody would say, may I comment on that? I'd say, I'll recognize the gentleman from Iowa for 30 seconds, you know, and they could get up and make his comments. But if you ran over the 30 seconds and I only have three minutes, to say what I wanted to say to begin with. And I'll say, reclaiming my time, Madam Speaker, I'll finish by saying this. But it also wound up being reclaiming the years that I was in politics, the 10 years, county school board and county legislature, as well as four years in the United States Congress, uh, the songs I might have written, the records I might have made. You know, you can't go back and recapture that time. Some people read it as uh, reclaiming the time we've all lost to COVID, you know, to the, even we didn't have it. The pandemic forced us to... uh, to be away from our, our loved ones, our families and best friends. And so we couldn't just hug anybody. We felt like hugging and a lot of isolation. But uh, so we're reclaiming that time too. This solo album of yours, Reclaiming My Time, rejoined you with one of your old writing partners, Johanna Hall, your ex-wife. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just want to give a little Hall history to our listeners. You wrote songs with Johanna, many, many songs, including both of Orlean's biggest hits. There's a song that you guys wrote. I think it was your first, or at least it was one of your first. It's a song called Half Moon. That's the first song we ever wrote together. That's amazing to me because it garnered the attention of Janis Joplin. She put it on her classic Pearl album. It's on the B-side of Bobby McGee. On one side, you got a Chris Christopherson written song. On the other side, you got Johanna and John Hall. What was your interaction with Janice and how did that kind of get the ball rolling as a songwriter and maybe even give you a leg up in the industry? Well, the interaction really started with Johanna, who was writing music criticism for the Village Voice at the time. And uh, when we were living in the Lower East Side, before moving up to Woodstock, Saugerties and so on, Johanna wrote a good review of Janice's Cosmic Blues album, the horn band that she had after she left Big Brother and the Holding Company. 
a lot of the critics were down on that record and down on Janice for leaving her brothers from the commune. And Johanna wrote that it was, you know, it was a step of growth musically and that it was a better setting for Janice to sort of go after the R&B sound that she really wanted and, that, and do those kinds of songs. Janice loved the review and asked through her publicist, who was Albert Grossman's publicist, uh, since Albert was managing Janice, she asked through the publicist if, uh, if Johanna would be interested in doing an interview with her for The Voice. So, of course, she was, and Johanna took the bus across town to some Greek restaurant to meet Janice for lunch and talk. And they hit it off and came back to our apartment, the four-floor walk-up with old cat boxes in the hallway. <laughs> I've been too lazy to carry them down downstairs. And the first thing I thought when the door opened and Johanna came in with jazz behind her, was like, I wish I'd have gotten rid of those cat boxes. <laughs> but we sat around, it was before Christmas, it was about this time of year. We sat around singing blues versions of Christmas carols. I remember doing a shuffle blues, a little town of Bethlehem, play guitar and Janice would sing. And I played her a couple songs. I think I played her a couple things from the Kangaroo record and, you know, some other songs that I had written, but without Johanna's help lyrically. And she said, I like the music, but it sounds like a young man talking. And I said, well, I am a young man. So she turned to Johanna and said, you're a woman, you're a writer. Why don't you write a song with him? that I might want to sing. So it was a command performance. We wrote Half Moon. Johanna wrote the lyric entirely without, before I ever worked with her on it. She wrote the entire lyric on the back of an envelope and handed it to me. And I wrote the music to it using a guitar lick that I had used for another song in an off-Broadway play that did previews in Philadelphia and never got to New York. But you're allowed to, to plagiarize your own work, I suppose. So I I took that guitar lick and, and we drove to California in an old white Ford station wagon that my parents had given us to play Half Moon for Janice out there in her home in uh, San Rafael, California, with the Full Tilt Boogie Band rehearsing for that Pearl album and the tours that they were doing. And Todd Rungan was her musical director at the time. And uh, so I played the song and taught them the, the changes and the, the guitar lick and the bass part and everything. And they took off from there and improvised their own parts on top of that. And Janice, of course, did. She she sang a pretty different melody from what I was singing, partly because she has the range that I don't up in those higher notes. So, right. But it was uh, it was an incredible thing. And we realized it was like bowling a strike the first time you go bowling. And Johanna said, you know, throw some gutter balls after that to get the ball back in the strike zone. And, but Half Moon was successful enough that it allowed us to buy a house in Saturdays after we'd been in two rentals in Woodstock and live for a couple of years while we figured out how to write good songs intentionally. So why has it been a quarter of a century since you guys have collaborated? Well, we divorced and uh, we're on really good terms now. I think uh, things have gotten, the hatchets have been buried and the, the charge, the emotional charge is gone from that whole breakup. But it, it just took a while for me to be ready and for her to be ready and the right situation to come up. But I was talking to her when I was working on this uh, Reclaiming My Time CD, and she had an idea that she mentioned to me, and I said, that's great, let's do it, let's let's write this song. And so that's the song Now More Than Ever, which is uh, is on the record, and uh, like two other songs on the record, it has uh, John Cowan, uh, Newgrass Revival singing, who's more recently been playing for 15 years or more with the Doobie Brothers, and Andre Zahn, who's writer, singer, fiddle player, recording artist in her own right, and has been with James Taylor for 15 years, and before that with uh, Vince Gill, and before that with Lyle Lovett. Uh, the two of them are singing on the song, and on Alone Too Long, and on Somebody. You know, it's just a couple of the incredible musicians I was fortunate enough to get to play on this and be part of the record, one of them being uh, uh, Sean Paddock, the drummer from Kenny Chesney's band, uh, for a couple of decades who plays drums on those songs and several others on the record. Peter O'Brien, who played with Orleans for years and recorded a couple of albums with us, uh, is on it. 
Jay Collins playing sax. You know, Jay, I'm sure we know of him from Catskill, New York. He's uh, done a lot of work with, with uh, Donald Fagan and Mike McDonald and Bob Skaggs. Went out with them as the Dukes of September. And I think played with the Albans as well. Yeah, a lot of fantastic and, uh, musicians on the album, I noticed. Uh, Jay Collins' name jumped out at me right away. Andrea Zahn, who I love. All kinds of great people. And also other writers that you've collaborated with in the past, i.e. John Paul Daniel is on the album. Uh, right. Co-writing some stuff with you. What did John Paul bring to the music? What was his? <laughs> was it was it mostly lyrical? Uh, it was music and lyrics. Uh, we collaborated on both. John Paul is a bass player. He plays guitar really well too, but he's mostly a bass player. And he played bass on a couple of songs. Well, let's see, "Alone Too Long" he's been playing bass. Uh, somebody, Mystic Blue, you know, a bunch of them. He's very uh, sort of inspired and emotional in terms of where the writing comes from with him. It's, I tend to be a little bit more analytical, but he's a really strong writer. He's had songs cut by various country artists and made a solo album himself. But we also, in terms of other musicians on this record, uh, Steve Warner, who I had written to it before, wrote a number one country record called You Can Dream of Me with Steve and a couple of songs that Orleans recorded and that he recorded on his records. And uh, so he and I wrote this song, Another Sunset, together. And he plays uh, classical guitar on it, the uh, gut string guitar that belonged to Chet Atkins. Uh, Chet's widow gave it to Steve. Wow. And uh, that's another little circle closing with a, a Chet Atkins connection for me. Steve used to go out on the road as second guitarist with Chet. You know, Chet hired, when Chet Atkins hires you to play guitar with him, that's a pretty high compliment. But anyway, so... There's another song uh, that Dar Williams sings a duet with me on, Save the Monarch. Another uh, local environmentalist and great songwriter from, I think she lived in Colburn. Absolutely. Yeah. I love Dar Williams. There's so, a video of that that's going to be out of us singing Save the Monarch that will be out in January. We decided to hold it back till after Christmas, but uh, but it's in the can and hopefully raise some more consciousness about uh, the environmental problems we're all facing. Yeah. Even those of us who don't know they're facing them are facing them. Save the monarch, the monarch butterfly, save the king, King Condor, watch him rise, save the ancient wood before the fire arrives, you in whom we trust.
At this point, you've written so much stuff. Lots of people have covered your material. What are some of your favorite covers of John Hall? Millie Jackson doing Two-Faced World. Okay. Uh, the Times doing Miss Grace, which we recorded with uh, Orleans on the live album we cut at Bearsville Theater. And I think uh, among my favorite covers would be uh, Bill Anderson doing Still the One or Bobby McFerrin's Dance With Me. <laughs> it's pretty special. Uh, talking about making up a new melody, you know. Uh, he just does his scat singing thing all over it, and it's it's really fun and uh, captures the song, but explores it you know to a whole new place. I should mention Linda Ronstadt doing uh, "Give One Heart," which was on the third Orleans record. Yeah, I mean she's legendary. Also, it's a, an honor to have had her sing on anything of mine or Johanna's of mine in this case. You've been listening to the Rick Z Show. Don't forget to come back for part two of our interview with legendary musician John Hall. <laughs>